You are listening to a Core Awareness Seminar by Liz Cook. Her website is www.coreawareness.com. That's C-O-R-E awareness.com. Please note that Core Awareness is a trademark signature of Liz Cook, her workshops, seminars, books, and CDs. The information presented in the seminar is in no way intended as a substitute for receiving professional medical care. The design and purpose of the seminar is to provide information and to simply educate. The author and publisher shall have neither liability nor responsibility to any person or entity with respect to any loss, damage, or injury caused or alleged to be caused directly or indirectly by the information, suggestions, explorations, or exercises contained within the seminar or written in response to the seminar. The author is not a medical authority, and she is not qualified to diagnose or prescribe any therapy. The information is simply her personal opinion. Please seek medical care for whatever condition you may have. So I'm very excited. Um, This is Liz Cook at Core Awareness, and I have uh, Kimberly Ann Johnson with me. And we really wanted to talk, have a conversation, and we wanted you to be able to listen in on our conversation and uh, maybe at some point um, get involved in the conversation. And for me, a lot of it is about discernment because we're going to talk about what is wild versus feral versus savage or at least start a conversation around what, what is the difference between my sense of wildness and my sense of being ravenous for something. Um, so before we, we go into this conversation, I wanted to frame it in a larger context um, with Kimberly's new book coming out, Call of the Wild, How We Heal Trauma, Awaken Our Own Power, and Use It for Good. And uh, my book, Embodying Core Awareness, uh, or The Wild Soas, uh, Stalking Wild Soas, I don't even know the name of my own book, Stalking Wild Soas, <laughs> Embodying Your Core Intelligence. Um, I, 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 what I love about your new book, because I have had the opportunity of, of uh, partaking in it, is um, your conversation, Kimberly, about always going into social justice. So before we go into the wild, I want to bring in what you've been tracking in your life because a, a lot of times I don't hear that in the descriptions of you because you work with women and, you know, you're working with trauma and birth and um, postpartum and, and now you're kind of allowing this larger field of your experience to inform your work with the wild. So let's begin by talking about social justice You've been tracking this piece, as you told me a little bit about your past, since a very fairly early age, college age at least. What started, let's just frame it a little bit. What, why? You're a white privileged girl from Southern California, I believe. What, what, what led you to social justice issues? Yeah, um, well, it started in high school. And 
for some reason, I was always just very aware that the environment that I was living in uh, was not normal, for lack of a better word. It just, it was not wild, and it was contained, and especially I made a move in fifth grade from sort of a neighborhood situation that felt kind of fun and collaborative and village-like to a very wealthy place where people didn't really talk to their neighbors, and it was obvious to me that those people were not as happy and they were not as fulfilled and joyful. And so uh, already I was like, okay, well, this isn't something to aspire to because this is sort of a more miserable place to live. And then the only people that that were of color in where I lived were either Mexicans because I live very close to the border of Mexico and Mexican was kind of almost like just to say someone was Mexican was like kind of derogatory, which I was like, that's a country. I don't understand why, why that's being othered or why people are regarding it that way. And then also there were some famous people that lived in our community, like Marlon Jackson, Michael Jackson's brother and um, Janet Jackson. And, and I just real, I just felt something inside me that was like this. I don't want to only live with people that, are apparently like me, but don't feel like me at all. And I didn't do anything to deserve what I have. And I just, from a young time, was really interested in knowing and exploring and understanding other ways of the world. So in high school, when we learned about Gandhian principles of nonviolence and uh, this, the whole civil rights movement and how those Gandhian principles got passed to James Farmer and how he translated those, um, that, that was the first major paper that I ever wrote. And so then when I went to college, I, I deliberately chose a place that was active in its diversity and inclusion campaign. And this is like in the, I went to college in um, 91. So I, my first year of college, second year actually were the Hill Thomas hearings and I was in African American studies class at that point and really actively seeking to understand what really was the history of this country and I was very lucky because my high school history teacher Mrs. Haxo we we read Zinn we watched Eyes on the Prize um, a lot of things that have been on people's list for people to be educated like this year about race were things that I I came up with in high school and then actively sought out in every way as I made my choices in college and where I volunteered my time and how I volunteered. I, I worked at a community organizing the, the Chicago Algebra Project, which was a project of Bob Moses, who after the movement went to Africa for several years. And when he came back, he started the Algebra Project, which was getting um, children in urban settings, algebra by the eighth grade, so specifically um, in major cities where most of the urban population is black. Uh, and so I don't, I ask myself that all the time, like why have I been asking these questions and the people, especially this year when all of a sudden many white people realized that racism existed for the first time, it seems like, why are all these people that were around me, why weren't they asking those questions? And I have friends who grew up poor who were asking those questions, and um, I don't I don't know why it is. I just know I always 
felt that there was something else that was happening that I couldn't see, but I really wanted to understand. Yeah. And your new, your new book, you know, one of the things that strikes me is that when you're talking about awakening our own power, you immediately bring it into and use it for good. So um, that speaks to that interest of social equity or how, how it brings us to the conversation around power. So we've been kind of yeah, chatting it wasn't around the power. First, it was the second title of the book. It was not the first title. And it really came out of this understanding. And I think that a lot of people who work in one-on-one healing, it's like, okay, so if I help this other person and they start to feel that they're becoming more whole and I facilitate a process like that, then what? And then seeing all of these people in the wellness industry that didn't seem to look at all beyond just making one's own life better. And also even these phrases like um, start in your own, I forgot what the acronym is, but basically like start in your own backyard. I recently interviewed a a local mayor who's – I've had a lot of interaction with over my life and that sort of was his message is like, take care of your own backyard. But the thing is, well, but what if your own backyard is only filled with people just like you? Like, is that enough? Because here where I just moved back to, which is where I'm from, Solana Beach, is there's just very few people that are, that are really that different and in educational background, social class, all of it. And so I really, while I don't, I cannot, say that for sure personal healing leads to collective healing and I don't and I and I think the reverse can be true there's lots of people that are activists and yet their personal health and I mean like overall health mental health physical health everything is being sacrificed for their activism is like where is that intersection and how do we because ultimately if we're talking about animal an animal is aware of its own surroundings an animal doesn't understand what happens on another continent. It, it never would. It would never even have that information. So if we're, t- if we're talking about animal, how do we make that leap up into understanding that other people's realities are different than ours and that that somehow is connected to us? Uh, to me, that's always been very obvious. It's been the source of a lot of suffering, too, of, of noticing that especially my family they don't really see it the way that I do and they don't perceive that but how do we pass that perception where it wouldn't even occur to us that someone else's well-being isn't connected to our own well-being well I'd like to challenge that concept a little bit because for me wild is uh inhabit all life all biomorphic expression which we all share so although on one level you can say animal body doesn't know what's happening on a different continent, I would disagree because to me my bones are uh, uh, an echolocator. They are picking up information that is not necessarily local but global. And so as a, just as we understand ecology is no longer local but global, um, we understand that, you know, when the butterfly wings move, something else is felt. So the felt sense, the somatic sense, the, the body animal knows things 
that are millions of years old. It may not be specific to their moment in time and space, but there is a knowing. There is a knowing that everything is integral, that everything is interwoven, that everything affects everything else. So I think from that level, we can access uh, a perception of knowing that is inclusive. And it's actually the human body that has isolated that conversation. That's why I think indigenous cultures, you know, we hear similar create the creation story. We hear similar ways of being on land and responding to life. You know, they all share something in common because we are one in our habitat, which is mm. the earth. So with that, yeah, I want to go. I want to go into a little bit around power, unless you have yeah. something else you want to go into, because that is what we're looking at with the white body in particular, um, and colonization, and how colonization has affected this sense of of a community, rather than what I see in the world of body work and embodiment and as also this idea, I'm, I'm not even sure I can use the word anymore, but resourcing. So I realized that's a colonized idea, that you go and you get something and you use it for your own good. And, and as long as we have that mindset, we are no longer actually participating in a communal or biologically um, uh, uh, dynamic interplay. We're, we're perceiving ourselves above something. And that's that power, how I would look at power over. And as I mentioned when we were talking briefly about it, that Brene Brown just did something on power. And she defined it as, you know, power over, power with, power to, and power within. So with that said, you know, many of us are looking at, at our own power and how does that play out. But we're what does that mean for us? You know, well, how do we define that? So what do you want to say about power? What are you toying with these days around the subject of power? Well, I know that the word itself creates ambivalence, uh, that there's a sense that we want the power, even if that's within ourselves, like we, but we're also afraid of it because we're afraid of what it will disrupt. We're afraid of being associated the thing, with the things that we, the ways that power has gone wrong. And so in a way, we're confusing what you're calling power over and something that's an external structure with power in, which is something that's operating within our system. And, mm-hmm. and then there's a lot of wires get crossed because from the point of view of women specifically, uh, who have not had power for a very long time or certain kinds of power in the power over under, uh, we seem to have forgotten also what to do with the power within or where it resides or how we notice it. Because when I'm talking to people, I'm always, I'm rarely tracking the stories of all the things that have gone wrong. I'm tracking where, where that impulse showed up. And sometimes yeah. I have to be so 
acute with it because the person themselves just keeps dismissing and dismissing. And I keep saying, but it was there, like in that moment, it was there. And if, and there's just so much, um, I think we're so afraid of what we have to give up if we are true to that, that knowing, the knowing that, and that knowing could be, this is just the wrong room for me to be in, that knowing could be this person doesn't seem like the right person or this relationship, but the, if, we, if we put up any kind of uh, resistance or limit, we notice the distancing and we can't, we, we override that. We'd rather have it close than let it go and contend with being, being able. And because, you know, we have, it hasn't been so long that, you know, and this is, this is where like racial differences really come in because, um, I mean, it hasn't been so long that anyone's been able, any woman has been able to vote. It hasn't been so long that any women have been landowners and it hasn't been so long that marriage has been redefined as, a property relationship. So it's a fairly new situation. Uh, but I just see, and I know you do too, you know, I was recently involved in the embodiment conference and there were so many teachers. And, and of course, within all of those teachers, there are going to be relationships, student teacher relationships, usually with male teachers and female students that, that go wrong. And, the ways that those discussions either are hidden, uh, protected, or they go sideways, right? Like we talk to somebody, like somebody writes to me to talk about it to sort of see, well, how am I getting, because I have relative power because I'm one of the presenters. I'm not one of the students. Uh, it just seems that we are we're constantly negotiating. Well, where where is it that it's safe to talk or to speak or to move or to ask? And it seems and it's very threatening to stand in the face uh, of yeah. yeah. So I hear you talking about this idea of what I would call claiming my own power. Mm-hmm. And and when we talk about these. You know, I I recognize I was I, I recognize that young women uh, can be innocent, but I've witnessed um, a distortion in that that I've expressed to you, and in the mythological world, have called it the Bluebeard syndrome. Uh, you know, the Bluebeard story, in which everyone's making excuses for the man who has the blue beard. Well, or accepting it. Like, yeah, it's strange. It's not quite right. Something's weird here. I can sense something's not right. But, but you know, it's not that bad. I think I can handle that. I can tolerate this. I can, you know, work around it. I can, and I'm like, like, why don't we sense when something is not right? That is, to me, a very biological, it, it does grow in experience. You know, I'm sure the little cubs, uh, you know, they always show the, the young animal body, you know, moving in and exploring, uh, you know, the scorpion or, you know, it's dicey. It's, 
you know, anything could happen, but there's curiosity there, you know, and, and yes, we, so we learn by our experiences, but I also feel like there is some way that women don't claim this knowing that is instinctive, that is, is to me the biointelligence and in not well, maybe claiming we, it or recognizing it. Because as you're talking, I'm, I'm, you know, just as I think it's when we're not in contact with the actual wild in ourselves, but also in the world, because look at, look at what's left for men in this country. Like, I've, I've dated so many men where I thought, like, they just need to, like, freaking go on a, like, go ride buffaloes. Like, the, instead, they're at a bar drinking beers to try to off-gas all of, like, the charge, or they're having sex in order to, like, get rid of their stress. But if they actually were, like, in contact, going out to, like, get food for their family, that was, and, and being in, in direct contact with the elements, this other way of, like, getting secondary needs met would be, like, the energy would be taken out of it. And when I hear you talking about these young women, and I am one of them, I, unlike you, it sounds like I have, I have fallen for this in many different iterations over my life. I think it's, it's not so far off of this part of me that knew that where I grew up was so sheltered and strange and sort of sterile. Is, is like mistaking the feral for the wild, mistaking the danger, because the, the wild itself, like if you, there's going to be enough danger just built into the situation. But it's like, it's almost like a five degrees off. And so there's something that's appealing there. And it seems that the excuses for it are sort of never ending, because if it's not a job position or it's not, um, special treatment, you know, a lot of this is based on people wanting to, women and girls wanting to be the chosen one, wanting to be the special one, wanting to be the one that gets the goo's attention. Yeah, one of the things I saw, um, I want to go back to that, like, there's two things I want to say is, one is, the Embodiment Conference had a group, I I sent it to you, of uh, four men, um, different ages, different parts of the world, and all were into movement. And movement was uh, the the movement brought them more into body, meaning dance, the creative, like movement, not you know getting something done, um, and and brought them into contact with the conversation was around movement and um, emotional intelligence, and it was a most beautiful conversation between these four men of how all of a sudden they had access to what they were experiencing and feeling um, on such a deep relationship. You know, some went back to very early, early trauma, say birth trauma and things that they feel shaped them, but it didn't matter. It was how they were showing up now and how they were taking responsibility, but how freeing movement was when it wasn't defined as, you know, we know men are doers, you know, so it wasn't based on this doing something. It was based on actually accessing their system and their capacity, but it brought them into uh, a layer of emotional intelligence in which they could begin to actually find words and articulate their experience. It was very extraordinary. I really, I really enjoyed 
that possibility. And I think women um, also need, you know, we have more. They were starting to go into the fact that, you know, women are raised with a kind of acceptance to have a, a layer of caring, both about themselves but also about others that men don't have. You know, they didn't feel like they were raised to really consider someone else in the depth that a woman is often raised that way. So they also see the cultural shaping of that conversation, not to take away their responsibility, but to recognize that they had to kind of, um, you know, go, go, go through or over a boundary that maybe their fathers all held in a certain way at, to um, explore that in themselves. So I feel like the feral is not only the, the, the man, but the woman's inability to know the wild, to know the wild in themselves. And I'm not, I'm not sure there's anything wrong with feral, but I was teaching a class that had to do with Bluebeard as part of, I was exploring myth and soma. It, could we do psyche and soma? And in this class together, which was held with, um, with two other women, one of them a psychologist and the other one a literature professor who had explored women's issues throughout her life and she was retired. And so the three of us were exploring story in relationship to a woman's psyche. One of the things that showed up is exactly what you were talking about. The idea that this one woman said, you know, I like the danger. Like, I'm not looking for safety. I'm looking for, there's something really I desire in that fear, in that feral man or in that danger. The blue beard is intriguing to me. So there's some kind of manipulation or desire or longing that she was expressing. Uh, and I didn't experience her as a very embodied woman in terms of her very clarity about who she is. So um, that was my own Well, I'm going to say that I think that there is something wrong about feral because there's a distinct feeling I have when I'm around children that I would describe as feral versus children that I would describe as wild. And Mm -hmm. the ones who are feral... Let's talk about that. What's the difference? To me, the ones that are feral are growing up without the right guardrails from their caregivers. And so they're allowed to do anything, but they don't understand where the limits are. And that would never be safe for an animal. A cub has to know where it can go and where it can't go, right? And it's not about like, um, it's simply about safety. And it's not about, you know, truncating someone's impulses. But the children that I know that are feral, by the time they get to be teenagers, they're many times very asocial, um, don't really know how to be in collaboration or community because they've, they've really just been encouraged or just haven't had any kind of supervision to just explore however they want and do whatever they want. So eat wherever you want. If food gets thrown around the house, whatever. Um, you know, climb on whatever you want. Yeah. There, it's it's no, much it. different, right? So, and and okay. there's a feeling to that. There's a feeling between okay, the so learning let, process. So let me tell you that when I was writing Stalking Wild Soas, I looked up the word wild in the dictionary. I don't know if it's the mm. Oxford or which dictionary it was. And these are the words that came up with wild, untamable, 
feral, out of control, riotous, ridiculous, rash, stupid, impractical, and tempestuous. How about that? Yeah, those are all, first of all, that makes feral the same as wild, because if it's using feral as a synonym, but I would say that's the colonizer's definition of wild. That's right. That's right. So we have to realize that those of us who have lived in the Western world are colonized and we have colonized thinking. So when we, both of us are using the word wild and you're talking about the inner jaguar and I'm talking about, you know, the, the stalking, the, the very core of your bio-intelligence, we're talking about something very different than this anything goes. Because like you said, you know, the, the mother bear, you know, or the mother wolf, she puts her, her cubs in place, and she has them stay in, you know, in the cave when she goes hunting when they're young, and there's nobody monitoring them leaving. And yet somehow they get the message through her transmission that where they stay is there, you know, and they don't follow her. And so she sends very clear messages of what is safe and what is not safe and what when you can you know start to hunt and when you can't start to hunt so i think you're on to something with this idea that we need to understand what we're talking about when we're talking about wild and these instincts we have and it's not an either or it's not like you have the you know you you control your impulses or you follow every impulse or you inhibit or you don't inhibit there's a there's a discernment that I want to mm. that's why I'm calling it discerning. There's a discernment that starts to happen when you're tracking the inner jaguar, when you're tracking this biointelligence that's giving you cues and clues. And what I heard you tell me when you were telling me one of the stories of where you were powered over was that you kind of rationalized the different ways you could look at the situation. And that to me, is one of the places that women, I can only speak about women because I am a woman and I work a lot with women, is that I see women um, either giving what you said, you could always find an excuse for what you did or for what happened or why you chose the way you did, but it may not sit well with you and you might have a lot of regrets about the choice that you made in that moment. So that's not discernment to me. Thinking, thinking, oh, well, but I need to do this or I need to protect this person or what if I do this, I won't get this. That's, that's an overlay on the wild instinct of, no, this is not a safe place for me. This is, not about, this is about my integrity, about my, my agency, and it's not about exposing someone else or claiming the power over them. It's the ability to actually track in yourself what really truly feels, you know, smells, hears, feels, senses, what you, Skype, you know that this danger is dangerous to you. It's not play. It's, it's doing something to your soul. It's harming you. I think that concept of me or I is in direct opposition or can be to this notion of caring about others and and the wiring that we have from our social nervous system, which evolved for maternal bonding, 
our estrogen that makes us really concerned with other people. And for me, um, in, in the sort of the most extreme of circumstances, but the pattern continued, my thinking was absolutely like, I want to get out of this place, this place. I don't like this, this person doesn't seem safe. And there was the other part of me that was saying, but he's friends of other friends of yours. And he's this person like this, like, why are you being paranoid? Why are you being, uh, you know, all of the ways that I could question it. And so I think that's what you call sort of the inner perpetrator. Um, mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know why, like the call for me to explore so just unflinchingly the awarenesses of other people and, and um, other cultures, other everything, like why, why was that not on a parallel track with my own self-protective instincts? And in a way, that, they were opposing each other because I was, I was Ooh, telling speak myself. To that. In, well, I was telling my, in, in some of the circumstances where I, where I put myself in danger or I was in danger, and I can say put myself in danger because when I look back, so after I was sexually assaulted the first time, the, after like a long period, like, you know, a year and a half of going through a sort of court system and being prepared for that and then being harassed some, being terrified to run into the person, and then eventually leaving school, I, my sort of answer to that was to go to Thailand and India by myself. So I was like 19. And that was a big deal for me to like take off by myself. And I, not that I thought I couldn't do it. It was just seemed like, it just seemed, it seemed like a big challenge, but that's why I did it. And, and I've heard from a friend of mine who hiked the John Muir Trail that there are a lot of women recovering for, from sexual assault doing the trail. Um, that there's yeah. this impulse that we have to do something that's very hard and prove that we can do it to ourselves because our our sense of our own self-protection is so shaken. Like, because, of course, inside of me was also like, why didn't I listen to myself? So, yes, I have to contend with the fact that, um, I mean, essentially my worldview, even though I knew about injustice and I had watched it and sought out information about it, my own world had never shown me that the world was not a safe place. So in mm. my mind, if I was good and I did the right thing, the right thing would happen. And that's, that's white privilege, right? Oh, like I think, wait, in my, wait, pause for a minute, pause, because you just said the thing very, very important. You said, if I was good, then everything would be okay. Right. That is a learned behavior. That yeah. is that is the that is a learned behavior that takes you away from wild. That takes you against your own is because it supersedes your instincts. When you tell a young girl something about don't do that, you know, you need to be good, you need to behave, you need to do this or that, and she's doing something that to you to the to the culture is not going to make her adapt to the cultural behavior that is considered good, then she's being trained out of her wildness, out of trusting her instinct. It's like kiss, you know, uncle, 
for me it was Uncle Leo. You know, kiss Uncle Leo. You know, no fuck way I'm going to kiss Uncle Leo. You know, he's there's something definitely wrong with that man. I won't go anywhere near him. Now that's not a good thing to do. You need to, you know, kiss, you know, like that kind of way that you say, no, I'm not doing it. Well, then I become the bad child because I'm not good. Right. Because I refuse you know, to behave in that I way. Because I, I can feel the instinct of no. Yeah, I can't remember in my, I mean, this bring to me, this makes me think of my mother line because I can't remember specifically, I mean, that my grandmother's way of always saying goodbye to us was like, be good, you know, but um, what I have known in the last several years is, um, so my, basically my grandfather, my dad's dad um, molested his sister during high school and that came out after he had already died. So there's definitely a history of boundary violation and, um, you know, all, all of the ways that that, that played out in secrecy and then I just came to find out in the last few years that my mother's father because of 23andMe he had a child before he married my grandmother and they were like 21 and 20 and when when we learned a little more about it which is a kind of a long story that happened through Cece because um, they got matched with their DNA and, and so she entered into contact because he said he was looking for material for paternal information. So she was trying to be helpful. And it turns out that the way he said it was that he was conceived. Um, his mother told him through like an unfortunate evening, basically that my grandfather sexually assaulted her and then now has a child that, you know, my, my mom has never met. So this like perpetration, the legacy of perpetration on both sides and then on the part of the women, this, the silencing, the acceptance, um, you know, and in every way, not only not, not only like disarming your instincts, but also being willing to remain in a situation where clearly things are, if we want to, I would call them feral or, or just totally dysfunctional in spite of all of the evidence and the harm that that's yes. causing everyone. Um, yes. So, and in, in my family, a lot of that has to do with alcohol. So um, different kinds of abuse based on alcoholism, uh, which I always do think is a little bit important to bring up because so many people have alcoholism in their families and don't talk about it and talk about all the syndromes that go along with it but not just naming the thing itself, which does distort so many things. Um, but, but when I think, I think the about... Distortion be, go ahead. Well, I, I was going to say okay. the distortion. The distortion, as we know, is also the lineage of, of grief. So, so we, you know, we can look at alcoholism from that place of trauma. Um, as you know, not not simply a metabolic disease, but a but an actual uh, ancestral, you know, conversation. So so what what we're looking at then in terms of accessing wild is is how that gets shut down or how that gets 
dismissed or how we learn to stop paying attention. So, you know, you you brought up the issue of the embodiment conference and someone contacting you around someone who they felt was, you know, knew knew was a perpetrator. And 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 you <laughs> and I and I said to you, I I can see that without anybody. I I don't have to enter into the conversation. I already can feel it. You know, like look at the picture and feel it. Yeah. Yeah, I can look at a picture and know that I would go nowhere near this person. You know, and 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 I've been in the place as I told you of working in the body work world where I watch the difference between um, a woman who volunteers as to demonstrate something and the response is how available she is and how, you know, and I look at her and I see how disembodied she is and how terrified she is. And I don't see it as availability, but the man in the room sees it as availability. And I see it as that she's an injured. Basically, she is, she is available. She's an injured like doe, okay? And yeah. she's like, she's, she's maimed. So in some ways, she is available from, a, you know, from the wild savage part. So we get into savage, you know, like from the idea of eating, yes, you can eat her. She's absolutely there for you to eat, you know. Now, instinctively, she is actually saying, yes, eat me, you know. I'm, like she volunteered, you know. She didn't. It's so fascinating to me what women do because on one level I'm like, whoa, wait a minute, you know, like why are you putting yourself in that position? You are not even in the position to be able to show up in this way. So why do you feel like you, you, you need to say, okay, go ahead and eat me, so go ahead and violate me? Where does that show up? Why don't we have the instinct, not a protective like don't come near me, but just standing your ground or knowing where your place is or feeling your connection, your sense of belonging to the earth. So I'm looking at it not just in the well, framework me, of men, when you but say in a context to the of earth. earth. Mm-hmm. That's gravity. And I, in other words, she wasn't in gravity. Right. And when I hear that from my experience of being in those, some of those situations, it absolutely feels like free falling. It feels mm-hmm. like, um, it, it's like, you know, I use this example when I used to ski and I knew I was going to hit a tree. I would just close my eyes and hit it, you know, like, okay, well, here I'm going, oh, I'm wow. going in that direction anyway. Okay, I'll just close my eyes and, like, hope for the best type of thing. Um, oh, wow. So I think that we reach, and, and we know this physiologically, that we reach this point where the threat gets to a certain level, and then we're like, okay, I'm done for. And that's a little different than what you're saying about someone who's going to initiate something. But, again, we come back to power. These people have reputations. They have decades of work and, and, and literature under their belt. Uh, in my case, some of them were assigned reading in school for me. So to me, they have this uh, credibility. And, and I think that's like, how do we confer authority? And I've really come up against that with my book because I don't have a master's or a PhD. I don't want one. Um, I mean, I'm just peripherally interested in neuroscience. I'm not really that interested in neuroscience. And my authority is coming from my personal experience and my work with other 
people, you know, lots of them, but still. And, and it's, there's so many layers to what we're talking about because, so I had the thing of like, if I do, if I'm good, then the right thing will happen. So that's like a worldview that got splintered. Like, oh, I can be good and bad things are still going to happen. And, you know, and a lot of people would listen to that and just roll their eyes because, like, their upbringing, you know, including, like, Cece, like, she doesn't have that worldview. She grew up in Rio de Janeiro where there's people sleeping on the street on the way from our house to the grocery store where it's very clear that people are good people and the world is not a fair place. Um, but I Yes, and the definition of that. good. And the definition of good can mean a lot of different things. You know, being good can mean uh, don't don't talk up, don't say anything, don't have an opinion. You know, don't like or dislike. Yeah. So, you, so good, good is a, such a you know to me it's a it's a word that has no substance to it because right. In my what's case, one good it, to one person is not good to another. You know. Yeah, but it is a cultural thing. Be a good girl, right? Good. Yes, be a good yeah, girl. Yeah, and I, yeah. I didn't, I wasn't raised religious at all, but I can see how, I can see the religiosity in it, and I definitely, the two other thoughts that I had that were impairing my ability to protect myself. One of them is, what if someone sees me right now? Which was basically, if someone saw me. That meant I was sexual, and that meant I got myself into that situation. So instead of... Oh, wow. Well, that's also a cultural story. You're right. asking for it. Mm-hmm. Not only asking for it, but, like, just really being seen sexually. I mean, like, the hardest mm-hmm. thing for me to do was to tell my parents. And that was in part because it was, like, admitting to them that I was a sexual person, which you would think they would assume and probably they did, but at the same time, it just felt so jarring to like, I had, I was, I was the quote unquote good kid who didn't give them problems, who got good grades, who stayed out of their hair. And now I'm the kid who's been sexually assaulted. And I didn't see it as necessarily weakness. Like, Oh, they're going to think I'm weak. It was just like, Oh, now my dad knows that I'm sexual. Wow. Wow. Think about that. Think about that that's what you're thinking about rather than yourself. Right. (laughs) What happened to you? And how do I digest this? And how do I feel safe in the world? You're worried about that your father knows you're a sexual being? I was thinking about about that for a minute. Yeah. I was thinking about all of them. Right, but it's still important that you said it because that's very honest and it's, it is what, you know, it's like, oh, you're like, you've been groomed to care about what your father thinks. Yeah. Not what, what is going on for you. Yeah. So that your father is the, is the support person. You're actually thinking, you know, the other way around. It's a, it's a it's a interesting how the culture grooms us for certain behaviors, and then here we are as adult women seeking our our sense of wildness, our inner power, our our accessing this this listening that has been muffled through the cultural story 
whatever the story is in the culture that I live in, which obviously is different around the world. Uh, and so as two white women were looking and living in the United States, we're looking at the, and, and two different age groups, we're looking at a, a way, and what I realized about my upbringing is that um, my mother grew up on a farm and she was very much of a tomboy. And uh, actually, I think, I think if she had lived today, she'd be a lesbian. Um, actually, she'd be a dyke, um, to be perfectly truthful about it. Um, and yet she also fit in as well as she could within the context that she was. But she was a very, she admitted her sexuality. She talked about her sexuality. And she married a man who was pretty uh, non-vocal and uh, was what's called a dry alcoholic, where you never see him drinking, but he's kind of checked out uh, on an emotional level. Um, but one of the things I realized that she did do was that she never told me to be a good girl. I never heard those words from her. I heard it from other people. I heard, I knew that other people didn't think I was um, behaved well enough or was controlled, you know, enough. Or, but, but I was also the last child, and she was pretty exhausted by that time. So I was mm-hmm. probably the one who got the least amount of, of, uh, of focus on at all. You know, I was actually pretty neglected. So in some ways, I wouldn't say I was feral, but I got to kind of hold on to the wild a bit, you know. I didn't it's have funny anybody. to say that because my um, best friend, she grew up in Arkansas, and her famous intro to sentences sometimes is the upside of neglect because she is very <laughs> wild. She grew up outside, and she grew up fairly neglected, but at the same time, she developed incredible instincts and a relationship to the land and a relationship to other people. Um, I know that's not the case for everyone who feels neglected, and you know, but it yeah, is it is exactly. interesting. Um, the upside of it, yeah, there is some truth, you know. And also, I was raised at the age where you know you were told to go outside and don't come home till it's you know dinner time. And and so we actually, you know, um, and it wasn't that I didn't meet up with things, but I had instincts that really turned on in those moments. When I was a so, have you never or... gotten caught fawning, or <laughs> is that not? I love that question. I'm going to have to. Po- I'm going to have to ponder that. My first instinct. <laughs> My first instinct is probably no, but you know. I also, you know, wasn't the girl that everybody wanted to date either, you know. I, um, so, so my, my uh, uh, yeah, you know, so I wasn't necessarily in the popular, in the popular realm of things. I was on a, you know, so, so, yeah, no, I, <laughs> I can't think of fawning too much. I mean, I know how to fawn. Like I could use it if I want to, uh, 
but I but I try not to use it as an adult. You know, like I like I know what it is. I I can watch it. I can see it in people. It kind of um, I don't I don't like it. You know, like my my instinct <laughs> is um, is to take it down. You know, like like a like a mother uh, bear would do or something. <laughs> like just you know cut that out because uh, yeah. No, no, I was not groomed in any way that way. So that's an interesting differentiation of looking at how we understand wild and how we came, you know, we each came to this in our own way. Um, and I wouldn't call myself a young woman saying, oh, I was wild or I had really great instincts. But now looking back on it, I think, and and I certainly got myself into situations that, weren't necessarily um, the best choice. But I'd never usually kind of over-talked those instincts. Um, yeah, I really actually didn't. It's kind of interesting. I don't know if it makes you any happier a person to be that way because you don't fit into the culture. See, that's the idea is that, you know, part but of I what we're calling... But I didn't fit in either. Oh, that's interesting. Nobody... Okay. Yeah, I, I, so it didn't. I, so your good didn't, didn't really work for you. <laughs> well, because it, it wasn't. First of all, it wasn't a rational choice. Obviously, it was a physiological one, and it, and it, I mean, it would be interesting to map onto like what I talked about in the book in terms of connective tissue predisposition, and you know, just how how we're trained into fight, flight, or freeze responses, but. Yeah, it didn't. It definitely didn't make me fit in any better. But I, in those situations, it wasn't about me fitting in in the larger context. It was about that specific situation. Um, I mean, do you want to talk about how you called me to talk to me about seeing me fawning? Um, yeah, we could just yeah yeah. I'll tell that story. So um, well. Well, it's kind of a, um, I will just say that I, I witnessed something you did and, and I thought of it as um, being naive. And so mm -hmm. uh, not knowing you really well, but knowing you a bit because we started to interact and teach together, I, I chose to just call you and say, listen, I just want you to know that I think your approach to the situation is, is naive. And I, I just need to give you a heads up because I cannot stand and watch you walk into what I consider a actually professional trap. Um, I, it wasn't a sexual trap; it was a professional trap. And so I said, you know, I think you're 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 going you're you're going to give up your power whether you know it or not, or someone's just going to take it. And you're mm -hmm. a rising star, so to speak, in in this field, you're a person who, you know, now has a book contract, and I see you being taken, um, taken down, and not taken down in that way of, like, destroyed, but, like, you could give somebody something else, and you're going to give it freely without even making a decision if you want to give it or not. And that's what I was trying to point out to you is beware. Beware that this, that, that, it's not all about, wow, we want to, you know, collaborate or we want to work together or we're going to do this thing. It's how that might be actually 
taken from you in some way or not. And you kind of were very, I loved your response, which was one, you weren't even sure you were going to, my sense was like, who is this woman? I don't even know her very well. Why, why is she calling me? <laughs> um, but you said, I, I liked your response, which was, I, I, I will hold that in mind. You know, you said it in some way, your own words, but you know, that kind of, that's the impulse I got. It was like, okay, I hear you. I'll, I, I'm not going to believe what you have to say or not believe it, but I'm going to definitely hold it, which I think is great. You're not listening then to somebody else's thing to tell you what to do. You're listening and you're saying, I'm going to just, you know, I'm going to see how this plays out. So I want to talk about what I was hearing from my side and also say that actually it was both a sexual and professional trap because the context that I had met this person was in a you know, where I live, there's like a lot of open community polyamorous type stuff going on. And so the context that I met was already a very unboundaried environment, which tends to be very uncomfortable with me because limits and boundaries are like an area of challenge for me. And so when I can feel those hazy relationships, like where people are kind of married, but they have other marriage agreements, I can feel that and it usually doesn't feel safe to me. And I guess it doesn't feel safe because I don't know where I stand or all of a sudden I feel like, well, am I fair game here? Or like, am I going to be tried to bring into this thing and I don't want to be a part of it, I don't think. And so it, it brings me into confusion. So that was the context where I even met the person. Um, but when I heard what you said, the, and the naive thing is the really important thing for me because like we we're talking about that does seem to be in opposition to the wildness and it also is this thing about me versus us because I have a very hard time with me like I deserve this I don't like the word deserve anyway but like this is mine that's been something that's hard for me um to say like this is mine and there's all kinds of ways in my head that I can say, well, it's not mine. I mean, I learned from this and there and like, oh, but it's just everyone's. It's universal. It's collective and it's this. So when you were telling me, I was like, okay, I really trust you and I trust your instincts. You're going out of your way to talk to me about this. So you're, you obviously think it's important. Most people wouldn't do that. And I also kind of thought, well, I don't, even though you were telling me something, you have something of value that I think he wants. I was thinking, oh, whatever, like, it's, it's not mine anyway, like, how's he actually going to do that? Does it really matter? And then it was just fascinating to me because I had the warning to watch it all un- unravel in real time. And also to recognize that it wasn't only, um, I, damaging is a little bit of a strong word, but I mean, it was definitely a hassle to be continually trying to like claim my space but also that I do feel that it did a detriment to the students because the students had to watch a power play happening that was confusing because there was the expectation and me not playing into the power dynamic that was being suggested made it made for a lot of tension but it also is a learning experience for those women who were there which it was all women. So um, that's a that's an important thing because um, in in the situation 
you know, when I'm in, when I'm involved in a situation like that, where the where I even am, know I'm entering into something that might turn into that, you know, my ability to stand in the face of it is a learning experience for other people. It's uncomfortable. It doesn't necessarily make for a total unified whole or a flow that like people can go, wow, that was really amazing. But actually, it can be. A, it can be such a learning experience that it can be like, wow, that was amazing to watch. It was amazing to watch someone just stand their ground, stand their clarity, stand their sense of self, and not necessarily have to power over or put down or, you know, be disrespectful, but but just show up and stay in your own core and, <laughs> and with your feet on the ground. You know, and I think that's what part of power over is like, well, we have to react and take it back or we have to do something more or we have to take the person down. You know, when you told me some of the stories, I immediately wanted to, um, I said, my first response was, I hope you walked out of the room, you know, with his balls in your hand that you'd cut them off. I mean, what kind of thing is that to say? But that's kind of the savage part of me. So I see my wild can go savage. It can go like you know, fuck you, I'm going to take you down, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, demolish you. Like, I can feel that impulse in me. I mean, you know, I haven't done that to anybody um, in terms of physicality, but I can feel that my wild isn't just to, to stay clear with myself and leave the situation or stand in the face of the situation. I often want to go for the throat. You know, and I can, I can, I can see that as part of my own upbringing as well as how to handle, how what do we do in the face of power over? How do we behave in that moment? Fawning is not what I fawning is not what I do in that moment. <laughs> I'm more of like Medusa. I just or Kali, you know, I, I, yeah. I've told many times, I'm like, Kali, like, I just want to, you know, off with your head. <laughs> yeah. No more. Well, you always push it to the next level. That's what I love is like, I think I'm doing something <laughs> badass. And you're like, oh, really? Okay, well, how about this? Like, let's up the ante one more. Uh, <laughs> but it was interesting to, I mean, I'm, I'm glad I did end up going through the experience because there were so many instances throughout the course of you know, 48 hours where I was, I was met with, okay, I'm able to do it. I'm able to hold a boundary to this point, but I can't hold it to this point. Or what you were saying, like, um, cause there seemed to be this sort of like dual for time or dual for attention in things that I have absolute expertise. I was kind of being pushed aside and it, and you were like, well, why didn't you take it? Like, that's the moment where you tell the other person, I'll do this one, you know? And, Mm -hmm. and I, and I think that there's one of the motivations is it's not really, I mean, I'm not such a polite person, so it's not like I'm like worried about being so polite, but that's the vein of it is like, don't be too rude. And the other one is (laughs) this sort of more, um, in the vein of the close your eyes and hit the tree, but more like, oh, fuck it, whatever, you know, fine. Yes, you give up. You give up. Yeah. 
no, that's right. true. Let's talk about that because I'll tell you something I see. When I work with people, when I work with women, I learned that when I support their legs, so one of the things I do is this like falling and catching. So it's just what you're talking about. Like when you start to fall, what happens? Do you just go go with it and hit the tree, you know, and right. help you recover? Um, and, and I do it with the legs. And they're, they're, if the fall is, is only like an inch, it's not actually like we're not actually letting the legs fall out. We're in constructive rest. I'm just playing. It's in Stalking Wild. I describe it at the end as a collaboration between how you can play with your own core responses. So when I, 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 I one woman stands out where I was supporting her, and she could, a lot of women will just collapse the legs. They will fall out. The feet lose contact, and the, the knees are in my hands, and, like, they don't care. And I started to realize that, there were, that they didn't know where you can let go, but you don't have to give up. And so I started playing with this with people where, like, no, you have to keep your feet on the ground, and you have to find where letting go happens while you're still staying grounded. Where do you, where do you give up in the sense of, here, go ahead. I'm willing to let you have this. You know, I'm willing to give this to you. Um, it's, a, it's an actually empowered place of being, of I can let go. Anyway, after I did, I worked with one woman. She came to one of my longer retreats where I spent a week with her. And um, I was, we were in the water, and I was floating her. Uh, I, was, I was showing my play with people how to get into the fluid movement work. And one of the things I sometimes do when I'm working with people is if they have long hair, I'll actually hold their hair. So instead of holding their head, I'm actually helping their body just move, but I'm, I'm further away from their physicality. by hip. So basically I'm pulling them around with their hair, but it's done in a mm-hmm. gentle way. And she comes out of that, and she looks at me, and she's the same woman who gave up her legs a lot. And she said, and was learning how not to do that or how to stay in her core while she let go. She said, my father used to drag me around by my hair. And so, I, I mean, I knew it. I never brought up the issue of whether she was sexually molested. But I knew that the giving up was like, I'll wake up after this is over. Like, mm-hmm. whatever's going to about to happen, I don't want to be here for it, so just do whatever you're going to do to me. And how many people get on a massage table and behave that way? We do whatever you want. You know, sink your hands into the core of my being, and I won't have any – I mean, this is, you know, one of those conversations around deep body work, because I actually don't agree with it, because I feel like it overrides the agency of the person's instinct, which would be to kick you out of the way. And so yeah. they have to mentally say, this is good for me. This is what I need. I really want this. You're a good person. You don't mean this any harm. This person knows but better than I do. Right. And, and, but, but she looked at me and she said, that's the first time I've ever had someone touch my hair that wasn't an assault. And she said it was so pleasurable. Like I had no idea at that point in mm-hmm. her story. But she had no response to it. She looked like she was enjoying it. And she had beautiful hair that was easy to hold on to as a mane that actually allowed her to float, kind of like you were if you were a piece of seaweed, you know, and your Mm -hmm. hair was attached to the rock. I was like the rock and, you know, just giving her that sense of support that allowed her system to go into this very fluid state. So then she told me more about herself and more about her. And I was like, yes. I, would, I know that was what was going on in her system, was that people who give up 
that's not the same as letting go. Hmm. You can stay grounded and let go. You can decide that you want this polyamorous experience because it feels really right to you and let go. It's not an either or. It's whether it's integral to your system or whether you feel you have to do this because of the pressure of otherwise, you know, you're really tight or you're really, you know, closed off or all the things that people like to tell somebody who they're trying. And that's why people get into cult situations. It's why people get into these dynamics where people power over because they give themselves up to the situation. And I think we've talked a little bit about this before, but that that confusion from a spiritual perspective of what that feels like, the encouragement that that's what you're supposed to be doing. That's what surrender is. Surrender yourself to this thing. And I think it plays into that deeper child desire to just be care, cared for, rescued, and then the guru comes in and says, give me everything you have, but then I'll take care of you. Somehow that part of you goes, does not stay connected to the earth and says, okay, I'll, I'll trade this thing uh, to either deal with the thing that I perceive to be wrong with me or to be able to just go into that like, well, now I don't really, I'm not really deciding. Well, Someone see, I think that's the, that's the issue. That the, there's something wrong with me is why you, why you sacrifice yourself to a guru. I, and not you personally, but, you know, why someone does. Because ultimately, isn't the guru, just like the body worker, saying, I can fix you. I can guide you into this. Whereas to me, anyone who is a teacher, anyone who's a body worker, their role is to hold space for your biointelligence to do the work, to show up. How can I support you so your own self-healing capacity, which every human being can self-heal, has the capacity to reorient, to reorganize, to you know, right itself in space and time, to heal injury? What is it that I hold space for, for that to happen? That is like the womb that you know, is allowing the organism to reintegrate, reassimilate, recapitulate, it's not I have to fix you because there's something. So that's to me where the moment is. And I have friends who have been, um, um, you know, in in that situation. In and and I, <laughs> um, I met a I had a man as a lover for a short time who was a deprogrammer uh, for the Moonies. And I met him on an airplane, and um, he deprogrammed me um, in really delightful ways. And um, <laughs> I found it really intriguing because I was really actually with him, not only because he was absolutely gorgeous, but because um, I knew there was something he understood about this, this surrender that I wanted to understand. And he was amazing how he kind of was able to talk me, like, like I would ask him questions, like, how does that happen? You know, like, how, why does somebody give themselves over? And um, the level of vulnerability in our system where we just say, here, 
you take care of me. You you fix me. You heal me. I, I, it's the giving up. It's that, like, it's not letting go. It's giving up. And it's yeah, based I on mean, feeling. I want to acknowledge that it's also, like, these dynamics are, they are simple, but they're also very complex. Because, as you know, like, they I had are. a guru, and my guru would say to me, I'm just pointing you to your own intelligence. Like, it's, it's and. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, okay, those are just words, but the whole framework of the philosophy that we were working with was very much about empowerment and, and learning things, and yet it still became very dysfunctional. And I, and I will 100% say I was in a very vulnerable spot, both physically, I had injured myself, so I was like physically not okay, and I, was, I had found myself in a place in India I, was, I had been in a really good place in my life before I went, and then everything kind of a relationship that I was having completely disappeared. And I found myself in a, in a space being like, what am I even doing here? And then that's when I met him. So I was already in a weakened state. But at the same time, and, and in that particular relationship, like I don't regret any of the things that have happened in my life, but that relationship itself and the learning in it remains the most powerful experience of my life. And I wouldn't be the practitioner that I am had I not had that experience. Not that I would ever, I don't wish it on anyone and I don't want my daughter to go through something like that. But it, it did, I can see how it served a purpose and I can see how I walked into it. Uh, And it wasn't because, you know, like even when I was, there with him I would talk about like Sai Baba and I would talk about like this we would talk about the crazy things that are happening at other ashrams um so it 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 was sneaky and as my life has gone along the those choices have become more and more subtle in a way that is like each time I think oh I can't I can't be tricked anymore I'm not available for that dynamic I can't like, there's no male power dynamic that's going to be able to twist me again or, or catch me, catch a blind spot. So I think that was also when you called me to alert me to my own fawning thing. In my mind, I was like, yeah, but I'm not, I don't, that pattern's over for me until I realized, oh, it's not over. It's just getting subtler and subtler and subtler, which in a way is harder because it's harder to see. Like, I can look at the picture that we both looked at. Yeah. That's discernment. And that's what's so beautiful is that, you know, to me, that is what we're talking about. And discernment has many, many layers to it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's where is my compromise? You know, you know, publishing a book, you know, there's discernment there, right? You know? And, and there's power over because the publisher has power over whether the books gets published again. Getting a job, you know, you know, your boss has certain power over. Like, where is the discernment there? And, and you know, relationship. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. It's everywhere of how I stand in the truth of my own core and where, how do I keep sensing into, how do I keep returning to that, you know? And that discernment, and how do I kind of sniff it, sniff it out, you know? And certainly, if you're, if you're 
you know, there's um, recognition is, I think, one of the very powerful places where discernment is needed because it feels good to be recognized. You know, it feels good to be asked to do something. Um, you know, it's, so there's all that, like, oh, and <laughs> but why? You know, so, I mean, for me, I think some of the discernment comes from almost a uh, opposite of like why are you interested you know i always i recognize mm-hmm. myself to be more of that kind of woman like so what do you want from me why why are you interested in me why do you find me attractive what do you you know like even when i was young it was like there was doubt and and that didn't necessarily bode me well so i went the other direction you know it's like on the defensive of like tell me more you know um, so it's like interesting, it, you know, so some of us come at it of like, here, how can I, I gain your, gain your approval? And others are like, why do I want your approval? <laughs> why do I want your approval? Mm-hmm. Uh, why are you get offering it to me? You know, which is also self-depleting because that doesn't really, you know, I had to learn, like I, one of the things I did in my life to gain agency was because I knew that was my temperament. I spent a year only going places where people invited me. Mm. And rather than think, why are you inviting me here? Who are you? I said, yes. And I consciously went. I mean, if I really didn't want to go, I wouldn't. But I basically said yes. And I went places where people said, we would really like you to come teach her. And I said, yes. I spent a, a year saying yes. It was a really good experience because I would tend to say no before I would say yes. And I wanted to know what is it to actually be with people who want me, you know, and that tracks back to, you know, I, I wasn't needed or wanted in my family. I was, you know, a mistake. And so it was like, oh, okay, I'm going to play with these patterns. And I think that was really fun. That's where discernment gets to be played with and and be wild in its way it's not like how how can i be hyper sensitive to this it's more like how do how i can open my system up where i can actually play with these dynamics which is exactly what you did after hearing what i said you said i'm going to play with this you know i'm going to check this out i'm going to watch this unfold you didn't say oh whoa i'm going to back off of this you said oh i'm going to see how this turns out so you played with it Yeah, that's kind of our only option, and hopefully we're at a place where, you know, like I guess it, it could get it could get some people in trouble to say yes to everything, but I think that's the whole point is, like, I'm a yes before no person, so I say yes, and then I have to backpedal afterwards. Um, and mm-hmm. so it's a practice for me to say, oh, well, let me think about that a little bit, or um, I'm not sure right now, but I'll get back to you because I'm always – yeah, I'm just pretty much always a yes first. So I think noticing those tendencies in ourselves and um, being able to have an attitude of experimentation at least keeps us in relationship. Well, it keeps us also in our parasympathetic because rather than coming from that strong sympathetic response, you know, I, I'm integrating 
it, I'm, I'm a, there's enough nourishment in my system that I can play. And playing is what the wild animals do. That's how they hone their nervous system is through play. Yeah. Play is, you know, play, play isn't just something you do on the sideline. It is how you create life. It's, it's, it's mandatory in the wild kingdom to play. That is how we learn. That is how, and playing means different things to different people. Just as you said, for you, it might mean to say no, or I'm going to spend some time thinking about that, or, you know, sit with it or whatever, move with it. Where for me, it might be the same thing, but it might be to try to see if I can challenge myself to accept that people want that and that that could be good for me to be in environments that um, receive me rather than go to the familiar, which is like, well, I'm going to be here whether you want me or not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and 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 so you know, and you've talked about how our nervous systems are very different in terms of the way they're kind of shaped or the the responses of the of the connective tissue, and so how we both kind of show up in the world. Um, and I I find that you know fascinating, but um, but the but you know, and within that within that capacity is in play is the ability to make mistakes is to fall on your face to to fail to um, you know to be vulnerable to so so it's not an either or it's the ability to have enough sustenance to be able to to listen deeply but also to, to to challenge yourself or to play in some way that feels you know, fun. That's and we don't always know when we're playing if we're really if if it's going to go bad or not. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's also the kind of um, resiliency that I'm looking for. It's because you don't know. You know, I could have gone someplace where, boy, that was really not a good idea, you know, or, you know, you can say no to something that you're like, why did I say no to that? You know, like, so we want to be, I think, resilient enough. And that's kind of what we're playing with, with this idea of power within. And, and when we are empowered within, we have discernment. And then what is the ways that we can develop our discernment? Well, this has been a great conversation. Is there anything else it you want to been. say before we, we close? Yeah, I have one more thing to say, which is about self-protection versus protecting others. And I'm feeling like, you know, I shared that thing about my grandfathers earlier in the conversation. And then, of course, like I didn't talk to my parents or my aunt before I shared that. And I'm just noticing that thought pattern because a lot of people that I know, um, for instance, have an incredible memoir to write. But the thing that's keeping them from it is family secrets and protecting them and um, that but of course when you're a child and you have those secrets you're depending on your caregivers so you can't you have to play by their rules but the way that that stays with us and yeah that we feel like for instance you and I were not naming names in this conversation because 
well, also because, like, our objective is not to, like, go around outing people. But um, just how that works and where is it okay? In, in general, I always err on the fact that, like, this is my story and I'm allowed to tell it. And they're allowed to tell their own stories. So I'm not saying that if their story is different than mine that it's wrong. I'm just saying that this is my story. But what I've also noticed, and, you know, I'd say that mine is, like, less significant because, for instance, I didn't survive incest, so I'm not outing my own perpetrator. But I feel that so many women are ill physically with self-autoimmune disorders and symptomology that shows up mostly in the pelvis because they're protecting something that is bigger than their impulse to protect themselves. Even if that's yeah, I protecting find that yourself. Yeah, a very deep, by... dangerous place to be. It's a very dangerous road to walk. I mean, I, I outed, um, uh, I told a story in one of my, one of my books that I've written for someone else about health. I told my whole story, you know, and, and, um, you know, it involved my brother and, um, and, you know, I have mixed feelings about all of that. Not that he's ever going to read it, but, you know, I, I had, I, I told family stories and he's the only person in my family who's still alive. So, so when I told family stories, it affected him, right? Mm -hmm. If he was to read it or it was, he was in the same world that I was in. And so whenever we have stories that we're telling that people are alive and, and here to, you're going to get reactions. But there's some stories that need to be told. And, and, and I, I, I think we have to, to I think for, 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 the, for the health of women, we have to, I mean, I think that's what the Me Too was, was the ability for someone to stand up and name the names and mm-hmm. speak the truth and what courage that takes and, and how sometimes we're going to feel safe enough to do it and we do it and then we're going to feel like, oh, shit, what did I just do, you know? And, and, and the idea that you want to protect the person who has injured you is, I feel like that's another conversation for us, but that, that mm-hmm. is a separate conversation, but it's an important conversation because there's colluding there. Yeah. And what I tell people who work with other people who have psoas issues, I said, if you palpate their psoas, I'll tell you what I think you're doing. What I think you're doing is that the person has fear responses around some kind of violation, whether that's, you know, child abuse or sexual abuse, whatever it is. And I said, and their system is building through a recyclable, uh, you know, recapitulation of the trauma. So they get to a certain level of tension. And then they come to you and they say, I just want you to get in there and release the tension and make me feel better, and you do because you've got the skills to do that. And then I said, so what happens after? How long does it last? 
you know, and almost everybody will say it doesn't last very long. I said, that's right, because you're in a cycle of taking their nervous system through something that they are not addressing. And so you've actually colluded with their trauma response. You have not resolved. You have not brought resolution. And uh, I know this in my own body because my mother was abusive. And so the times when she was aggressive and, and uh, terrifying and, you know, she would threaten to kill me and things, um, she, you know, it was not after that happened. The after that happened is when you have the letdown, when you, like, it's over with. It's the building when you don't know when it's going to happen. And as my one sister would say to me as adults when we would talk about it, she said, she was the hot she hid. My other sister tried to please, and I um, always went right into the storm. And she said, couldn't you hear her tap her foot? And I said, no, I didn't hear her tap her foot. But I just knew she was becoming aggressive, and I found that really irritating. And I was going to match her, um, which didn't work out very well. Um, but you know, I thought that was so fascinating that she heard she heard something that made her flee, and she would disappear. She would hide somewhere. Now the well, interesting thing with the three children, I just have to say, is my two sisters are both dead, and in very tragic ways. And I'm still alive. So there's some part of me that says, well, facing the perpetrator can sometimes be what actually maintains your integrity. I don't Definitely. Know that's why true. I think that, I mean, that I didn't know that about you. And to me, that really explains, because basically when you're, you're calling it savage, but it's like a rage annihilation response, right? And that's what you're going to have if you're, Either you're gonna, your system's gonna go there, or they're gonna, it's gonna go to flight, like your other sister, or it could go to freeze, which flight and freeze to me are usually closely coupled. But that's why I actually, and it, and the science or the dominant narrative isn't hasn't borne this out yet. But I believe that fight is a is a higher function than flight. I don't believe that it's like fight and flight are equal. I believe fight is higher than flight, is higher than freeze, not just evolutionarily or phenomenologically it's it's actually because that engagement instinct yeah of course if you're if you're totally overpowered then you're going to want to leave so that you don't get decimated except for the fact like what you're saying when you're in engagement you're not turning that in on yourself Mm -mm. you're turning it outward you're not internalizing Mm -hmm. it and thinking you're you're reacting protectively and, and there's mm-hmm. something when I'm helping women renegotiate these responses, it's usually always in the fight. And what you're saying is like in the use of the legs and the willingness to meet the territory and stand there claiming it, if not moving towards it, because oftentimes it's just the claiming it that would change the entire dynamic. It's not even exactly, exactly. That's what I call standing your ground. Like, like yeah. the warding off impulses that I play with. You know, I used to call them, you know, start on. Somebody said, you know, but you could be really surprised and happy. And I said, yeah, you could. And then as it kept refining, I just called it warding off. And when I explained it, I said, you're warding off not by being aggressive. You're just simply showing up and standing your ground. 
which is why in that dynamic when someone wants to usurp and take over and push you out of the way, standing your ground and saying, you know, I, I can handle this or I would like to do this piece of the teaching or, you know, I don't want to be spoken to that way or whatever it is, the standing of your ground or even to face the fact that, you know, Uncle Leo was a, you know, a perpetrator and a, a predator, you know, like, saying it out loud in the family dynamic, that is empowering and can shift. And even though everybody's upset that you've, you know, in, like, you know, you don't know the whole story or, you know, whatever it is, you're naming it. And naming it is one of the major ways that change happens. Just like we're talking about, you know, it's not enough to say, oh, I'm not racist, any, you know. In the social justice world, it's like, you, you, you know, everybody's like, well, I'm not racist, you know, but saying, speaking the truth, I think has a power and everybody's truth is different. Yes, but that's a kind of, I don't know, you know, you have to be careful with that. It's just as much as you have to say, well, I do know the truth. Naming it at least brings the conversation into possibility. Let's talk about why Uncle Leo was such a creep. You know, I, I knew it from the time I was little, and I would never, ever get near him, you know. Like, I knew it. I don't care how old I was. Whereas, you know, others did not. And others denied it, you know. And so all these kind of dynamics, I think we have to kind of see how they show up in us and then kind of be curious about our response to them. Is that the best response for ourselves? Is that where we really own our truth? as our truth and are willing to name it. Yeah. But and I think what it means to me when I do that is it means uh, I have the audacity, which SOAS is associated with audacity, gallbladder. Mm -hmm. I have the audacity, I have the audacity to to state what is true for me, to show up as who I am, you know. And and it doesn't mean I can't change. It doesn't mean that I can't see somebody else's point of view. But I have the audacity to show up and manifest, especially in an environment where somebody else wishes you wouldn't. This is don't mm -hmm. do that, you know. Yeah. Don't behave that way. And they're counting way. on not, the that. That is not good. Right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. And then people do. They take it, you know, they do count on it that you won't. And they may choose you because they can sense that you won't. So then you become... You do become prey. Mm -hmm. And like going back to Bluebeard, just to kind of come full circle, that story is a very powerful story. It's in Dr. Estes stalking, uh, not, uh, what is it, uh, run, Women Who Run With the Wolf. And it's, it's a powerful story because when I worked with Dr. Estes, I realized that the predator uh, or, or the bluebeard in my life, one of them was my mother, which is not like kind of what the kind of mother one wants. Um, 
but how we also turn that, there's a bluebeard as a psychic, and that's where we were talking about how do we become our own predator, where we take ourselves down before we've actually shown up. That in the psychic world, there's that. And then the other piece is that at the end of the story, you know, she does see that he has killed many, many, he's had many wives and killed many women. And, and the story ends with her, you know, it, it, it ends with a kind of conversation of like, what else? And one of the things that we explored was, you know, going back and opening the door and, and the restorative nature of all women that when we do something, we can actually help restore the power of women, the power of the feminine, the wild feminine in all of us. You know, there, it, it, is a, it is what you were saying about recognizing that we are a we, we are a community, we are, a, you know, there's something other than myself. And so when I, when I stand my ground, I'm also giving that impression for my daughters, um, and they they laugh about it now. They go, wow. Sometimes, you know, my one daughter said the other day, she goes, yeah, you know, Meg, which one of my children, my other daughter said, she said, boy, she, you know, she was really standing her ground somewhere, and then she looked at me and she goes, God, I feel like mom right now, you know. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and they laugh, they laugh as adult women. It's like, oh, God, there she is. Yeah, she's starting to show up in me, you know, because I'm not going to take, I'm not going to take it, you know, laying down, so to speak. I'm not going to, I do feel passionate about this. I am going to express myself, and I am going to stand my ground. And they probably do it with more finesse than I might do, you know, with less aggression or less um, belief that, you know, insistence that I must be right or all that kind of stuff. So I think, though, we, we offer that to all our children, to our, to our friends as a, a way of saying, you know, we aren't going to collude in this dynamic of being good girls, whatever that might mean. doesn't mean we yeah. can't be, you know, good human beings, uh, but well, we're not also, in the good girl. I've noticed because the shame complex is so prevalent and in spite of ourselves, just because of the social nervous system wiring, it's like the tendency for most people is to think I, this is, I'm bad. This I'm probably, this is probably the worst case scenario. Um, instead of thinking, I bet most people have gone through something like this. I bet most people could relate to this. if not the details, the dynamics. Uh, it's funny because I've been saying that a long, for a long time that I just something happened in me and I had a breakup and I kept noticing that my mind would say, oh, I bet he's doing so much better than I, I am. And I just flipped it and started saying to myself, I bet he's having a hard time too. I bet it's different than what I'm experiencing, but I bet it's also challenging. And, and that really shifted how I was working through the grief of letting it go. And when I work with women and in groups, whether it's online or in person, I see that just one person being willing to take the next step away from the secret or the hiding or the feeling that, you know, this is so unique to them is healing for everyone because they realize, oh, this is a problem that goes way beyond me. And this contention with power is something that we're all dealing with. 
Yes, we are. We are. And I, I think it, it goes even back to the healing of our own ancestors. So give my mother as an example. You know, growing up in the time that she grew up, her only choices, she wanted to be a lawyer. And her, her farmer father said, no way. You know, women can't be lawyers, you know, like, so what does she have to do? You know, she chooses, she chooses the best thing she knows, which is watching her own sister die in a hospital and the care being poor and her going, well, then I'll become a nurse because I certainly could help, you know, I could have helped my sister more than the people who were there. And so she became a nurse. But, you know, what were her options? They were to be a nurse. They were to be maybe a teacher. You know, there weren't even flight attendants at that time. You know, so her limits of what she could do were to care for other people. It was not to stand her ground and speak her truth, which she probably would have been an amazing, you know, lawyer. So I I have a lot of compassion uh, through ancestral work of where her rage came from. And I know more about her, even if it's, you know, it, it starts to make sense where so much of her strategies for survival came into play that I can also choose not to be like my mother um, because I do have more options and um, and there's a softening around that and I can then witness how different women do stand their ground and it can have a different feel than the way she did it and and it wasn't to lash out and to be savage. I can I can let that part go and feel the wildness, feel the connection to this, you know, the audacity of of showing up without the cruelty of being savage. Yes, and just to put a fine point on that, I think that a lot of people just try to go to that compassionate, explanatory place too early. Um, you activated yeah. your fight responses all along and you had a passive, you know, reckoning with yourself about what the story was to be told and how to do that. And you didn't make it first about understanding where she came from. And, and you can really feel that in someone when they're just doing that as justification because they don't want to deal with their own pain. And they're telling mm-hmm. all they're telling the whole story from the other person's point of view. Um, so I do think forgiveness is possible and I do and sometimes in real you know in real life and sometimes it happens real time meaning but I want to I just always want to encourage people to find the agency first before they flip the switch back to compassion or altruism or you know understanding because I I think that's just like idiot compassion it's not actual compassion it's just a way to deflect how harmful whatever it was really was and how painful that is to recognize that you were a victim in a certain way. But you have to Can I ask you a question around that, though? Yeah. Can I I ask you then, why do you feel such a strong need not to out your perpetrators? That's that's Some of them I feel fine about I don't want to out my perpetrators. Yeah. Some of them I feel fine about Just as a question, not as a... You don't even have to answer it. But just as a observation because that feels to me is also like not only do we have to like forgive somebody or not forgive somebody but then we have to look at what is the fear around outing someone who is a who who I 
I mean, in a way, that's why I called you. Is like I, I, I thought about it. I thought, this is, you know, do I call her? Do I say something? Do I email? And I thought, no, I don't want to put anything in writing. I don't want to, you know, set myself up. But at the same time, I couldn't let it go. It's like I have a responsibility for a younger woman. I, I feel I must turn towards the women who are younger and, and be there in some level of support and I I would not be able to live with myself if I didn't point out to Kimberly what I saw even though it's my impression I felt strong enough to like that it needed to be said and then you could do whatever you wanted with it you know and I feel so many times when we look at like how people collude and women will say oh yes this person is a you know perpetrator but nobody will tell anybody else and then how do we do that appropriately so the question is open-ended i don't know if you have an, even an answer but i feel like it plays into that part of like you're forgiving somebody or you're protecting them when in fact wait a minute weren't you the victim of that situation you know shouldn't you feel some outrage in that situation wouldn't outrage be an appropriate behavior? And wouldn't outing them be maybe a potential of something that needs to be done? And certainly when people do it on the, on the big arena, like we've seen in the past few years, I mean, that takes such bravery. And it does take accumulation of women often, you know, if you look at Weinstein, you know, like somewhere there had to be enough women willing to to know that otherwise they'll be demolished by it. So I understand being demolished if you out your perpetrator is one of the fears. But I'm just curious what else is there? Why, why protect them? I'm going to leave it as a question because I think that I have the answers, but what I hear deeper is kind of just leaving it open-ended mm-hmm. for now. Maybe we can circle yeah. back to it another time. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's another conversation. Okay. Yeah. No, I mean, it is. it is. It's the same thing as why do I jump to, to forgive before I've actually owned what's happened for me. Like to be my own protector, to show up for myself, to be the mother. That's what I had to learn. I had to learn how to mother myself where I, I felt not savage towards myself. That's what I meant by you know, Bluebeard could be inside as well as outside. Right. Yeah. Okay, well, let's go back to that then. We will, yeah. So (laughs) this was good. This was more than I expected us to. (laughs) But we knew it was a deep and long subject, so here we are. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for initiating it and following through. And just being with me in the journey as I unravel some of this stuff, it, it was it's actually good for me to, I think I need to check in with my aunt. And she's had some super strong reactions to things that I've said and posted that she thinks I'm blaming victims. Um, and oh, wow. she's followed my work, but it's, it's, you know, the, a lot of people who are super politicized, um, they just don't allow for any questioning of, like, the hashtag believe survivors type thing. You know, like, to me, it's like that's not nuanced enough, and it doesn't speak to gray areas, and it doesn't speak to 
our collusion into like what, how these dynamics get set up and why almost everyone finds themselves in some version of it. So, um, but Mm -hmm. because it was her father who incested her and because it was her story that she at 65 finally decided to tell everyone told her not to, because my grandmother was, you know, 85 and they're like, this is going to be the thing that's like puts the nail in the coffin. And I was so relieved that she did because she was just kind of like, fuck it. Like I, like I can't, my, I'm having anxiety and panic attacks and all this stuff. And my whole life I couldn't understand her posture. Cause she's like, I just was like, I don't, what is this? Like, it didn't make sense. And then the minute that, my my dad told me that I was like oh I now I understand everything now it all makes sense um but still like she's traceable to me and she's not really a public figure she is she's a screenwriter so she has had like I don't know but I should just maybe ask her because I I do feel like this next step of the journey even though the book I don't talk really extensively about my own family um or or my own history with abuse that just kind of comes it comes through in and out in different ways but it's not a central focus I don't tell the story of being assaulted or anything um I feel like that is going to come up in a lot of the interviews so um might just be good to have a preemptive conversation rather than a retrospective conversation yeah yeah um and uh, and we can uh, we can carry on this conversation about what we want to even do with this recording. Uh, yeah, it's for us. It was our dialogue. I did record it, and if we want to share it, we will. And if we don't, we won't. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Okay. Yeah. So you can sit with it. I can also send it to you, and you can listen to it. And. Uh, Thanks for thanks for doing that. We you know we can just see what we want to do with it. It's ours to do whatever we want, and I won't take any steps without your permission. Okay, sounds good. Let's just keep in touch about it and see what we want to do. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. And then I'll um, I will get back to you. Cece's going to go away for the weekend, so I'm going to have more space so I will be able to look over more carefully and send you feedback on the page good yeah because we can say this in case we do post this is that um we're going to do a movement class exploring uh, the idea of wild feral savage discernment and certainly if we do that this is a good precursor to listen to but um even if not we'll we'll see we'll see what we do with it so thank you Talk to you later. Thank you. Okay, bye.